You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to humanitarians to students, I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. This is part one of our first episode on refugees and asylum seekers. Today, I'm joined with Gillian Triggs. Well, I think it's an important question because when you understand where we came from, we've actually taken a 180 degree turn in the wrong direction. We will be exploring the refugee question in and just outside of Australia, as well as her experience working with the Australian government on immigration policy. I'm sitting here with Gillian Triggs, the former president of the Human Rights Commission here in Australia. And recently she has been appointed as the United Nations Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, working with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi. Gillian Triggs has a long history of committed service to human rights and the refugee cause in Australia, the broader Asia Pacific region and globally. Thank you for being here. It's a real pleasure. Just to start us off, could tell us a bit about your education background and what it was like to be a student here at the university ah. in the 60s? Well, I, um, I was born and brought up in London and I went to a, a Catholic convent until I did what one did in England in those days in the, in the 50s. I did the 11 plus exam, which meant that I was liberated from the convent <laughs> and went to a grammar school. Uh, but within a few months of that, and I, for me, this was liberation. I just loved it. I, uh, my parents decided to come to Australia. We migrated to Melbourne and I went to University High School, which, of course, is just across the road. And the, the miracle for me really was that the assumption at, at University High School was that you go to university. Mm. And we had all our assemblies, school assemblies and sports and things all in the university facilities. So I almost felt as though since I was about 13, I've been at the University of Melbourne. Uh, it's just a very long history. We, we, University High School at that stage had very few resources, so we just used everything very generously offered by the university. So I, I, it was a sort of natural thing. I went straight from school then into the law faculty. It, it was a very exciting time to be at university in the early 60s. It was a time of great social change, a great sense of optimism, I think. Mm -hmm. And although I didn't do human rights work until the relatively recent years of my professional career, I think the excitement of those years on campus was something that stayed with me, really, an interest in social justice, social welfare programs. Gareth Evans, the um, president of the student union at that time, uh, and I was, you know, a second or third year law student. But I, I think it was a very dynamic environment in which change was really happening all around you. And that, then I became very interested in international law and did that, at, uh, you know, in the law faculty and then went off to America and did a, did a master's and so on. So all my real, you know, significant education was here uh, with the university. So what was your first job in the human rights field? Well, you could say that the first job I ever had was when I, I, I was in America. I'd done my master's degree in Texas, and I did a summer internship with the Dallas Police Department. It was a very difficult time in, in the United States in the late 60s. Kennedy, of course, had been killed in, in Dallas, and there was a very big move in America after the civil rights legislation of 1964 to ensure non-discriminatory access to employment in the public 
environment, including police departments. So during a summer internship with the chief of police, I did an opinion piece on non-discriminatory hiring practices for the police department. And the chief of police then offered me a job for the next two years. So for those next two years, I gave advice uh, to him at his request, obviously, uh, on the employment practices to ensure that more blacks, Chicano Americans and more women were employed as the, in, in the Dallas Police Department. Um, uh, you might say that was a bizarre thing for such a young lawyer to be doing, mm. especially when I wasn't an American and yeah. couldn't practice law there. The chief of police couldn't get the legal advice he wanted from the district attorney's office that refused to embark on any discussion about the 1964 civil rights law. Um, and he, like my legal work and said, well, if you'll give me that advice about how this civil rights law works, then I'll give you a job. So I really had this remarkable position for, for the next two years. And that was really my first um, experience of dealing with deeply entrenched racial discrimination within the police department. Um, that was very, very hard to dislodge. And I learned the lesson that merely passing the law of non-discrimination doesn't get you there. You need to change a culture. So I, I learned a lot in those two years. But I'd have to say after that, I really moved much more into um, the international commercial legal environment. And it wasn't until I joined, uh, was asked to take over as president of the Human Rights Commission that I started to do some really uh, in-depth um, human rights work. When you talk about refugees within Australia and how we treat them, this concept of exceptionalism comes mm. up a lot. When do you think this rose up? Well, I think it's an important question because when you understand where we came from, we've actually taken a 180 degree turn in the wrong direction. In other words, if I can go right back to Dr. H.V. Evatt, who represented Australia during the drafting of the United Nations Charter, was president of the General Assembly when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was passed in 1948. Um, Australia has had a very, very strong engagement in the negotiation and ultimately signing and ratification of the major human rights treaties. And we've been you know, punching well above our weight and been very influential as a middle power in helping to develop the international environment for human rights law. So when did this change? Well, to the extent that you can ever you know, draw a line mm -hmm. in, the, in the historical sands. I, I really put it at 2001 when we had the Tampa crisis and 430-something um, asylum seekers and refugees were brought into Australian waters by the Norwegian ship's captain. Mm -hmm. Then within a couple of months of that, we had the children overboard saga, to put it politely, but basically lies by the government and, and doctoring photographs to make it look as though Muslim asylum seekers were throwing their children overboard. The Senate determined a year later that there was not a scintilla of evidence to support that. But within uh, weeks of that event, we then had the 9-11 um, terrorist attacks on the United States. And I think uh, we can now look back over the last 18 years and see the world really has changed in terms of its attitudes to migration with a conflation of rising Islamophobia with migration, with asylum seekers, refugees, and, and linking them, conflating them with terrorism. And I think from that period, we saw a retreat by Australia from the kinds of human rights protections that you see in pretty well every Western de de democratic country, a problem compounded by the fact that we're the only common law country and the only Western democracy that does not have a charter of rights. So mm. it's meant that Australia's taken a turn very much against our history of the previous 50 years. So I know Victoria has a charter, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. 
but nationally we don't. That's correct. Can you shed some light onto why we don't have one? Well, of course, as you, as you point out, Victoria's had a charter of rights now for about, I think, 12 years. The ACT's had one for many years and uh, Queensland is about to get one. They passed the legislation for it to start in June mm-hmm. next year in 2020. So we're getting somewhere at the, at the, the, the state territory level uh, with some quite advanced or liberal progressive legislation, uh, which will ensure that the courts can declare legislation not to comply with, with these fundamental rights, but with nothing at the federal level that's comparable, nothing at all. So the, the your question is why? Um, and I think one reason is that the political conservatives have argued very, very strongly against a charter. Um, in 2009, uh, Father Frank Brennan had conducted a national inquiry uh, across the country, uh, and he reported that there was overwhelming support amongst Australians for a charter of rights at the, at the federal level. And the Labour Party um, accepted that report and uh, his recommendation that we have a federal charter. But the closer the Labour Party got to the election, uh, the more cherry it became and it ultimately backed away completely from the idea of a charter. So I think there's been a very, very powerful force at the federal level uh, against a charter at the political in, in po- political terms. And one of the arguments that is a trite and inaccurate argument, but one that nonetheless carries a lot of weight with some people, is that a charter would give the judges greater power. And the argument is that only parliament should have the right to, to create laws and that judges should not be there to, in a sense, interpret what the freedom of religion means or what freedom of speech means. That would give the courts too much power. Now, that's been the, the, that's been the political argument against. Um, and I say it's a trite argument because, firstly, most of our fundamental common law freedoms came from the judges in the first place exactly. from about the 13th century yeah, onwards. So, that. I mean, it's, that's absolutely normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it just demonstrates people who argue that clearly have no understanding of how law developed in a common law country like mm. ours and, of course, uh, originally in Britain. Um, but the other is that the kinds of models that are being looked at as a, as a legislated charter would never be constitutionally entrenched in Australia, I don't think, it's, at least not for decades. Yeah. I can't imagine that happening. But all that the court would have the power to do is to declare that a particular law breaches a fundamental right and it then goes back to Parliament to, for, for the law to be amended accordingly. Mm-hmm. Now, if Parliament chose not to do that, Parliament could do so. But at least it will be clear that the courts have said it's contrary to the right, for example, to freedom of religious expression. And and if Parliament refuses to amend that law, it will it will lie in that position. So in other words, Parliament will always retain that, that sovereign position as being the lawmaker, but the courts would have a much more significant role in being able to declare that something's inconsistent with that right. So, I think it's a nice yeah. balance. Yeah. So I was going to say the charter wouldn't override Section exactly. 18C at all. It'd just be... Like well, if, that's right. Yeah, uh, just telling him it's wrong. Or they could say that Section 18D is, a, is an adequate protection for the right to freedom of speech. I just wanted to bring it to 2014 when you came out with your inquiry into children in immigration detention. How did this come about and how did this impact the political environment today, do you think? Mm. Well, it had a huge impact, as we know. Um, how it came about was, was quite interesting because when I took over at the commission in, in 2012, my predecessor, um, Catherine Branson, a former federal court judge, had conducted an inquiry of her own, which she was, of course, fully entitled to do, into the use of wrist x-rays to determine the age of children who were being accused of people smuggling. And she uh, very successfully conducted that inquiry. It was factually 
inaccurate to use the wrist X-ray. It mm. was it breaches the the children's rights to be considered individually by reference to their background. Um, and uh, she was successful in bringing that inquiry. But by the time I took over, literally a day or so after she'd finished her report and and finished her position. I was rather reluctant to hold any more inquiries because the commission was a bit tired, we were exhausted. And we just, we conducted uh, inspections into immigration detention of children. Um, and then we knew that we were going to have an election. So although I knew the number of children in, in uh, detention was, was rising uh, under the Labor government with a number of people arriving in 2013, I didn't, I didn't want to run an inquiry quite so soon after the previous one, but then we had the Abbott government elected and within about five months of the Abbott government in power, the number of children in extended detention had massively increased. So there were 1,100 children in detention and on average they were detained more than a year and three or four months and many for, for some years. And it was clear that the Abbott government was going to do, wasn't going to do anything about it. So I couldn't do anything more behind the scenes. I'd tried. I'd given reports to the government. I'd speak, spoken to ministers. I'd done everything I could to get them to change their minds. So I decided that I had to use my inquiry powers, mm -hmm. my public inquiry powers, which will bring the whole thing into the public arena uh, in order to determine the mental and physical health of these children, the impact of uh, prolonged indefinite detention. And um, so I did. But once the government became aware of the the potent nature of this inquiry, that we held five public inquiries around Australia. We got, you know, about 280 or so submissions. Uh, people, the press helped in the in sense of publicising what we were doing. They were running articles all the time. A lot of media attention given to the inquiry. It was quite clear that the condition of these children was desperate uh, and that it was grossly in breach of, of fundamental rights. What were the conditions that the kids were facing? That the medical, we, I took medical um, experts, paediatricians and general practitioners with us to every detention centre several times. So we visited 13 and, and Christmas Island three times, 13 detention centres as well as Christmas Island. So the evidence was slowly mounting from the, the government's own um, contractors dealing with medical care as well as the government's own statistics and our own findings through the surveys and inquiries and so on. So um, it, the, the evidence was mounting up, but the condition of the children was simply dreadful. When I first went to Christmas Island, for example, there was no had been no schooling for these children for a year. People were committing suicide. There were 20 women on suicide watch when I was there. Um, children were playing in the dirt with, with um, feral chickens and... Um, no, no crayons, no drawing materials, no books, nothing. And it was, a, it was essentially, a, it was a concentration camp. It was a prison. The conditions were appalling, and the heat was dreadful. And we had pictures of the sores um, that don't heal in that heat. It, it, it was indescribable the condition of the families. Mothers not able to make eye contact with their own children. Fathers absolutely desperate. And as I say, twenty women um, on suicide watch. And the fathers were trying to care for the children. Families were breaking down. And the children were in despair, especially the unaccompanied teenagers who knew that if they weren't getting any education, they were going to slip further and further behind. So the conditions were dreadful and, and they were essentially prison-like conditions under very, very harsh regimes of the guards, the Serco guards. We are always looking for new writers. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. Did you feel about the government's response to the finance?
findings because they attacked you they quite did. heavily. They did. They did. Well, they said it was essentially a political exercise, uh, which it most assuredly was not. And had the Labor government kept 1,100 children for more than a year and a half on average, I would have done the same thing. Mm. It, just, it happened to be that government. Yeah. Whereas the, the Labor government before that, the children were in for relatively short periods of time, two months, three months for security checks, medical checks, all the rest of it. But they were moving them through the pipeline. And I knew that from my own um, observation, from the statistics, working with the government. It was only when we got to the Abbott government that we realised they had no intention of releasing these children. And that's why you know, I embarked on it. However, you're quite right. It was rejected by the government as politically biased and wrong. But in the end, the reason they attacked me, I I suggest, was that the facts in the report, the evidence and the law in the report was so measured, so accurate. There was nothing they they couldn't criticise the report. So the only thing they could go for was me. And that's what they did. Uh, and, the, and the commission, of course, but I mean, basically, they, they were they were attacking me. And well, that was fine. I knew that it was going to be politically difficult, but I didn't realise that the government would try to reject the report because we knew that it was accurate. Anybody who takes the time to read it will see how even-handed it was and how measured it was. Um, that's not the point. The government decided to attack on political grounds, and they were never able to challenge it on factual or legal grounds. Did this connection and like kind of intertwinedness between um, like politicking, as people call Mm -hmm. it, and your inquiries or whatever you brought to the table, did this always frustrate you? Because I Mm -hmm. feel like it would happen so often whenever you shed something with fact and then you're dismissed as... That's right. Yeah, just trying to propagate something. That's right. They they always equated anything I did with, with the politics on the grounds that I was biased against the government. But they never they never responded by reference to the facts or the evidence. And I, I'm afraid that's been part of a trend over, over recent years to reject expert evidence, whether it's on climate change or on conditions of, of well, um, institutional um, child sexual abuse or the treatment of banks of their customers. Every time you have a factually evidence-based inquiry, then the reality is there. But the government's will often reject that evidence. Now, they didn't ultimately on the banking inquiry. They really couldn't. And they've had to accept the the findings of the child sexual abuse uh, within institutions. But they've resisted. They've been pulled, kicking and screaming to hold any of those inquiries. But this government in particular really, really does resist evidence-based inquiries because Mm -hmm. the public tends to want to believe those inquiries, they tend to have a relatively high level of credibility, but the government doesn't want them, but it's counter to the policies that they want to adopt. So you're right, you get this constant intermingling of politics with with the evidence. That could kind of relate when Manus Island was closed in 2017 and how there was a lot of people left on the island in limbo. Amnesty International came out with the report of the um, Mm -hmm. forgotten Mm -hmm. men. Is this still an occurring thing? Are there going to be people left behind like yes. this? Yes. Well, that's the tragedy. That although, as you know, the, United, uh, the uh, Papua New Guinea Supreme Court found unanimously that the detention on the island within that facility, a prison effectively, 
had to be closed because that was in breach of the principle of, um, of the liberty of the person under the Papua New Guinea constitution. But as we all know, all that happened was they were moved from that facility to another facility mm. that was being built by the government that was declared not to be a detention centre. So it didn't make any difference. They could wander around the island more, but it didn't alter the fact that they were imprisoned on the island mm. and they'd simply been moved from one facility to another with a different name. Uh, so the, the outcome has been exactly the same. And the Papua New Guinea government is now demanding that the Australian government do something about these. I think there is still about 300 or 400 men on Manus. Miraculously, the Americans, odd though it may seem, mm. under under President Bush, they have been good to their word. Now, they haven't taken everybody uh, and they haven't taken the number they promised to think they were going to take 1,200. I don't think they've taken anything quite like that number. They've taken around 500. 500, that's about right. But the problem is, that, uh, let's assume in good faith, it's no, I have no basis for arguing otherwise, the Americans have done their surveys and their security tests in good faith and they've taken those they feel they reasonably can take. And in the circumstances, I think we're grateful for that. But the tragedy is that it leaves a lot of people um, who have been declared to be refugees under Papua New Guinea law in this limbo because they can't leave the island. Australia won't allow them to come back. We've left the Papua New Guineans, these rather a rather poor developing country. We've, we've simply shoved the problem across to our neighbour, a rich country to a poor country, utterly disgraceful. And we've left these people there for six years and more with nowhere to go to. And is it majoritively men? They're all men on that. Yeah, so mm. is there like a preference system, um, a way in which they choose who actually is resettled to America or who's resettled into like another processing system or? Well, the Americans have taken both from Nauru and Manus. Yeah. Um, but in light of that, there is no cue for any of this. I think there's been an attempt to get, well, they did get all the children off, or most of the children. Yeah, and so that was the off. priority. Well, I, I think it's probably been a priority for the Americans. Maybe it's been more urgent, for example, to get the Iranians off because the Iranian government won't take them back. Each yeah. country has got different priorities or different elements to it. And of course, the Americans will properly make judgments as to which they most want to take. But they've certainly rejected a number and the fear is that they're going to be something in the order of 150 or so left. And the question is, where do they go? Uh, if Australia were to accept the... Well, I, frankly, I'm not sure that it is even Australia's decision anymore. But I mean, if Papua New Guinea decided that it would accept an offer from New Zealand, then that probably would be a safe pathway for those people. But whether that will happen or not, I don't know. I do know that the legacy, in a sense, again, that the, the Australians like to use, but that legacy left behind in Papua New Guinea, that is the most pressing problem at the moment. Because the infrastructure would still be there and there's no facilities for these people to use. They're just on their own, really. They're on their own. I mean, I don't think the Papua New Guineans are cruel to them, but it's just that you're stuck on this tiny island with no work, no, nothing to do. They're bored. People decline mentally in those circumstances, and um, it's very, very depressing for them. But were you involved in trying to get these people on a resettlement plan or another project? So I wasn't involved in the UN-related work. It yeah, wasn't so. for me to negotiate with them. The government had to negotiate. When all I could do was to continue inspection visits of uh, monitoring visits of the Australian-based ones, including uh, Christmas Island. Any of the detention centres that remained open, and many are, of course, we still hold about twelve or 1,300 people uh, in, in mainland, as well as a certain number, and I think it's around 300 on Christmas Island. We, we still have concerns about that. We have always at the Human Rights Commission worked or tried to work with the government for those families and adults left on Nauru and the men left on, on Manus to try to bring them back to Australia because they are essentially Australia's responsibility, not the responsibility of Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Um, I'd have to say those, those discussions were, were fruitless. We've not achieved very much. You can achieve something in individual cases. Sometimes behind the scenes you could, you could use advocacy 
to persuade that a certain person needed medical care or that there were particular family reasons, quietly the government would. So, it's, But they're very tiny numbers relative to the whole. So we, we tried, but I, I'd have to say that it, it's exceptionally difficult working with the Australian government over these last few years. You mentioned a proposal from New Zealand yes. to accept the resettlement of a number of, I think it was like 150. It was 150. Yeah, so why is the government not taking up that offer? I think there's there's hubris involved in this. Um, they weren't going to let these men off the hook in a sense. The other more sophisticated argument, I suppose, is that if they come to New Zealand, they would then use New Zealand as a backdoor entry to Australia. Now, as a lawyer, that is absolute rubbish. All that needs to be done is to say that when they enter New Zealand, they would not have the New Zealand citizen right to. It was a silly argument and, and really a very spiteful one because this problem could have been resolved many years ago. Stand to be corrected on this that the New Zealanders were prepared to take 150 a year. If they'd been sensible enough to accept that offer some years ago, we would have cleared the numbers in Nauru and Manus in a much more humane way instead of the billions and billions of dollars that the government's been spending in mismanaging this uh, this humanitarian tragedy. Yeah, and I thought there was still the opportunity to actually go back to that maybe 150 a year because they, they just need they, to open up the discussion. That's right. Prime Minister Ahern has said that the offer's on the table. She's never taken it off the table. So, I mean, which is an amazingly generous thing for the New Zealanders to do. Exactly. Now, Australia doesn't like that. They see that as condescending, as undermining Australia's policy, easy for New Zealand to do because very few boats ever get down there, so they haven't got the same problem. I mean, there are differences, but it would have been such an easy face-saving way to resolve the problem, to say nothing of the humanitarian need for a resolution of the problem. But, and here we are all these years later the, with a continuing the problem. To say nothing, of course, of the um, 20 or so thousand people who are now in Australia who can never get anything more at best than a, than a temporary protection visa, which has to be renewed every three years. All goes back to that exceptionalism idea. Exactly. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions, and thanks for listening.